the, the, these are the people that I will, would be hanging with, out with tomorrow if it wasn't half term. And um, uh, there are volunteers. They've all got their Haven T-shirts on, on and their lan lanyards on. But all of them are local people who, who come from the area. And they just do a fantastic job uh, doing brilliant projects in the community. So some of the projects are, if you go to the next one, this is our food pantry. So <clears throat> who's heard of food pantry? Any of you guys? Yeah. So it's different from food bank. So that's like really important. So people come, they pay four pounds, and then they get to do shopping. Um, our strap line with all of the stuff that we do is supporting people out of poverty with dignity. And it's that word dignity that is, is really important. And we feel that uh, although food banks, they are unfortunately needed, but we feel that going doing a food pantry as well, which is what we predominantly do every week, and we're just about to set up an, another one, it enables people to have that sense of choice because when they pay their four pounds, they actually walk around the shop and they actually choose what they want. They can have... Um, yeah, but there's, they have 10 items. It's sort of like done in a way, but it's about that choice and about putting it in the bag, paying the money, and then uh, walking away. Other things we do is we have our pop-up cafe. Uh, again, the purpose of this pop-up cafe is to bring community together. So it's to get anybody and everybody. It's just come along and let's eat, let's commune, let's talk, let's listen, let's support one another over food. Everything we do is over food. If, if, there's, if it's not food, it's not, it's not worth doing. That's what I say. Um, what are we having later? Is it soup and dumplings later? Yeah. Um, and uh, we also some stuff as you can see with with young people we do try to take a few risks so um, <clears throat> but as you can see there's food at the center of this gathering as well this is our uh, I'm gonna call it our communion over marshmallows and fire um, that's fine you wait till we, uh, we, we we bring the uh, what's it called the, the energy drinks up to really hype them up for our uh, uh, have we got any more pictures Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, that's fine. So go back to go back to the king. So the reason why I wanted to just briefly talk to you very briefly about some of the stuff that we do is because all the people in those pictures at the Haven, I would say that they are they are the marginal voices. They're the voices that our politicians, and we can look at that later, the voices that our politicians for me fail to hear when they make all of their um, decisions. So, let's go to this story. What do we make of this story? Here we have the king, this wise, wonderful king. Now, it's important to recognize, so this story is at the book of the kings, <clears throat> and it's important to recognize that that's a fact. The writer was trying to do something uh, very important, to set the king of Israel up as a good, wise, and just king. Because a few, um, you know, a few books ago, or we had the, they, they had no king. The, uh, the Israels, they, they were kingless. And they said, we want a king. And obviously Samuel said, you don't need a king, God is your king. 
but they petition to get this king, uh, and eventually God, as you know, allowed it. And we got King Saul, and then we got King David, and then we had King Solomon. So at the beginning of these books of kings, it was really important that we establish that this king needed to be a good and just and wise king. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Don't put your hands up because you might get into trouble. But <clears throat> has anyone seen, without putting your hands up, I can um, Game of Thrones? Right, now if you have, of course you haven't because you're good Christian. You're a good Baptist church. You wouldn't watch that sort of stuff. Now, if you have, they have within Game of Thrones, they have what, a person that's called the hand of the king. Now, the hand of the king, he was the mouthpiece of the king. He spoke on the king's behalf. So the king just sat there being all lazy, I guess, and drinking wine. But the hand of the king, when the hand of the king spoke, it was as if the authority of the king spoke themselves. So here we have Israel. They have had to establish this new monarchy so when the king of Israel speaks, he speaks with the authority of Yahweh. You know, he is representing, he is in that place that Yahweh has. So I think that's, that's where we're starting from at the Book of Kings. So that I, I, for me, I think the writer is trying to outline, you know, we need, as we go forward to explore the kings, we need to know that this king is the voice, the mouthpiece of Yahweh. So here he goes. They bring, um, they bring this, this, these, these two, two people before him. And uh, he, he hears their arguments. And he, something in his head, he thinks, you know what I'm going to do? I'm a wise and good king. I will chop the baby in half. And you can imagine, we've, we've heard the story, how it comes. One of, the, one of the women says, no, please, you can't chop this baby in half. She's the real mother, and that makes the king think, ah, I know who the real mother is, because obviously the real mother would want to save her child no matter what, so he makes his good and just decision, and everybody goes, wow, wonderful, brilliant, fantastic, well done, king. So there's the story, and we all live happily ever after, right? Of course we do, <laughs> yes. But... I'll be honest with you, there's a lot about this story that I find very problematic. Firstly, um, it's really interesting that the story starts off by saying that these women are prostitutes. Think, well, what, why? What's going on here? Why, why does the writer feel that they need to narrate these women as, you know, some of the lowest forms, you know, from the lowest position of their society. Do we need to know their prostitutes? Does that make the king's judgment any more wise or amazing that they're prostitutes? So I'm really troubled how, how we've decided or how the writer in this story has decided to narrate these women. And I think about that in my own context. I think about that within my neighbourhood. So I hear stuff all the time. So it's called Welsh House Farm. They talk about, you know, oh yeah, Welsh House Farm, that's rough. Rough, isn't it? You know, we hear those words, don't we, when describing people or describing places. I'm really interested. We get called the Welsh House Farm Estate. 
And when we say estate, and sometimes housing estate, we're not talking about national trust. You know, when I say to you, <laughs> when I say to you, ah, oh, I live in a housing estate, you know, in your head, you might, it might conjure up some, uh, some images. It might conjure up, you know, maybe young people, antisocial behaviour, single mums, um, you know, a bit of domestic violence, definitely high unemployment. So all of those uh, language. Now what's really interesting, if you were to walk out of my housing estate and walk a mile up the road, you reach this place that is called Harborn Village. How come they get to be a village, I get to be a housing estate? I don't know. So it's really interesting for me how we, how we use language to, to put upon people or places that are very, for me, disingenuous. And I think there's something going on here with these women when he starts off, immediately by calling them prostitutes. Um, other things I think that I struggle with uh, concerning this story. Again, the king appears to be, and I, I'll, I'll use this term, like this great, within our context, this great white saviour. All of the emphasis on who had the wisdom and the ability to sort out the situation was the king. Okay? This king... I'm assuming that he's never spent a day in poverty. I'm assuming. I'm assuming he's never gone hungry because he hasn't been able to afford any food. And I'm assuming that he's never gone cold because he's not been able to get enough wood for his uh, fire. If you can imagine, this is the king here. You can imagine the king has many, many servants. He probably sleeps in an incredibly comfortable bed with about four pillows um, he, he, he's probably never even put his own shoes on in his life. Yet he somehow has the wisdom um, to understand and know how to make good just judgments to these two women. Does that sound a little bit like maybe some of our politicians today? That's really interesting how we have these politicians, and I don't, want to, I don't want to be disingenuous to our politicians either, they, they are people, but nevertheless I'm aware that they make decisions for the poor and they have no experience of what it really feels like to be poor. But they make decisions all the time. And when they make the decisions, there is for me, a certain arrogance about it. There's a certain, we know what is good for you. And unless, and this is the irony, unless we get the markets, which again have got problems, stepping against it, they will carry on, but we won't, you know, we won't over-reflect on that. So that's the other thing that I sort of like was struggling with, is that this the, these women become completely disempowered in the situation. In actual fact, as soon as the king has made his judgment, the writer gets rid of the women altogether. They are gone. And he ends up by saying this, 
All Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to execute justice. But here's my question. Was this really justice? Was this justice for these women? Is that what we really believe? Is that what we really think? I'm interested to know, when it comes to justice, what had led these women into prostitution in the first place? You know, these women, they had felt that they had no other choice but to sell their bodies in order that they could have food to feed their children. Now, so what is going on with justice there? Did the king think about that? Has the king gone and brought these women on board and said, hang on, let's, let's look at your situation because when they leave the court, they have to go back to that situation. Is that justice for the women? How is it that these two women have to share a room together? You know, that's, again, <clears throat> something that I would be interested to explore. So when people come into the Haven Centre and they start saying things like, um, I've got to go to court, and we've had this lots of times, because I'm, I'm £3,000 in debt for my energy bills or TV licence and stuff like that. And the question that we sit down and ask and talk to the people is, okay, what is going on in your life that has led you to get to that place? And how can we support you and get to the root of this stuff in order that even if by some miracle you do able to pay that back or you set up a direct debit, you know, we are looking at the very issues that are actually leading you or have caused that poverty in the first place. And how do, how, how do we support you in that? I think that is really important. What are the other structures and institutions and things outside your control that are working against you? What are the unfair um, things that are happening that are forcing you to get yourself into that position? Uh, and another question. This is a massive one for me. One of these women... She's just lost her child. And it seems to me that there's no care at all for that woman. In actual fact, when she is sent away from the court, she, all she has with her is, is shame. That's all she has. You know, she has just lost her child. I want to know, where is the bereavement counselling for her? Where's the aftercare for her? Who's standing with her? in giving her comfort, because the king is not, and the people are not even considering that that woman has a voice. All the people are doing, they are applauding the king for his great wisdom, his justice. And I'm thinking, is that justice? Is that really justice for the woman that has just lost her child? Um, I want to quickly read you a story from The Haven, if that's okay. Because I think, uh, for me, this was a big, big changer in terms, of, in terms of how I started connecting and um, working with, with people. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's a good picture. Um, 
I remember, I call her Margaret, and I remember the day that Margaret, she came in to the centre. This was before we had pantry, but we were doing food bank. She came into a, the centre. Uh, she, she worked. She worked about 40 hours a week. She was, um, she was a carer. She used to travel around people's houses, uh, looking after people. Um, she used to have to pay her own travel, and she didn't get paid for the travel, but she'd get paid for the half an hour she was there. Anyway, she had, and she had some children. She came to the Haven, and she came to the Haven, and she said, I am so sorry, she said. And she was really quite tearful about it. She said, I am so sorry, she said. I've never done this before. I'm, I'm sure you guys have heard these stories many times. She said, I've never done this before. She says, but can I have a food bank voucher? And I was like, yeah, absolutely fine, Margaret. Don't worry. But then I pulled out my, uh, my um, thing, my red, what's it called? Um, thing that I have to fill. We just call it a thing. That's why it's worth. <laughs> and I said, right, Margaret. I said, what you have to do, and I, you have to tell me all your information. She tells me her name, tells me how many children she's got, um, tells me her date of birth, and I'm writing all this down. And she, she is just devastated. She, the shame that she feels having to, to do this. And then it comes to the point, I said, I'm really sorry, Margaret, but you're, I need to tick a box. And I need to tick a box to say why you, you need food. And you know, you, could, you, you, you know these boxes, you know, I'm, I'm in debt. You know, I've lost my job. Yeah, and all of that stuff... So she then has to say, yeah, basically I just can't afford to live. He said, yeah, but it's, it's not on there, Margaret. You know, maybe managed your money badly, waiting for her. So, so we just ticked some sort of box. I've fallen into debt or something like that. And then I then have the power to give her this signed or not. On my signature... She then has a piece of paper that allows her to get food. And when we say get food, what we're really talking about is standing in a queue outside a church building to eventually get a stranger giving her two bags of shopping that she's got no choice over, that she then goes home, and she needs to be thankful for that. And that breaks my heart. And, you know, it does break my heart. Giving out food vouchers does break my heart. We need it. And I don't want to say food banks are, are bad, but often we don't ask the question as we are giving out the food. Actual fact, what is really going on for these people that needed to stand there? How do we support them with dignity? And how do we challenge the injustice structures and systems that are actually making them stand there in the first place. And we need to be a bit careful, I feel, on the food banks. Well, a bit careful on the food pantries, a bit careful on all that we do. Because the danger is we go home and we think that we've done a good job for people. That's the danger. That We go home and we go, yeah. If it wasn't for me, those people would go hungry. So, well done me. So we do need to be a bit careful. But at the same time, I don't want to be too discouraging 
because obviously we are called as the church to stand in those places of the marginal people and support them. So I want to bring a little bit, a little bit of hope. Are we all right? Do we need a bit of a cry? I know I do. (laughs) But I want to bring a a bit more of a hope here. Um, And I want to talk about this person called Jesus. Because I think, actually, fact, Jesus, he, he helps us in thinking about a new way in which we could be engaging with people and the systems and the structures. When I read the stories of Jesus, what I see him doing is I see him empowering the people that the rest of society has narrated as a prostitute, if you like, as rough, as those housing estates, as those young people on antisocial behaviour. And I see them giving them empowerment and giving them a voice. Um, The woman who had been suffering for bleeding, from bleeding for many, many years, what did he say to her? He said, who touched me? She wanted to be quiet. She didn't, was like, oh, I don't really want to know. And he brought her forward, and he said, right. He said, I want to hear your story, because you have an important story, and people need to hear it. And that sense of bringing her story to the fore, and then saying, yeah, brilliant. And the great thing about that story, we then wrote it down. Now it's a story that even we get to share and get inspired by. So that sense of empowerment by giving her a voice. He didn't just come and say, I'm just going to fix you. He said, I want to hear your story. The woman who washed Jesus' feet. So it's custom that when you go into a house, as you know, happens to us all the time, that the owner of the house washes our feet. You know, because we, our feet are tired, our feet are dirty, aren't they? Unless you spend like 100 odd pounds on a pair of good shoes, Nike shoes that my children do. But other than that, it's custom. Now, this didn't happen when Jesus went into uh, the house. I think it was a Simon's. But here, again, was a woman that we call a prostitute. Somebody on the lowest ladder of our society. And what did Jesus do? Jesus received, allowed hospitality for her, from her. And the empowerment that that gave her, it wasn't him doing to her, he allowed her to serve him, to minister to him, to wash his feet. And again, similar to the woman at the well. He says to her, I'm hungry. He said, I am hungry. Can you get me some water, please? And again, received from her. And I think, how often do we allow ourselves to receive and be hosted, if you like, by those that we think are less well-off than us? Do we, food banks or whatever social projects become, soup kitchens is, is, is a really interesting thing. You know, can you imagine you're having this line of rough sleepers and you suddenly turn to them, or the soup kitchens turn to them, and they say, do you know what? Tomorrow, 
we want you guys to come and serve us. And uh, we'll line up while the rough sleepers come and give us food. We don't do that very often. But imagine if, if we were able to start thinking that way, how empowered these rough sleepers would feel. And I think coming back to our project, I think that's what we've tried to do over 20 years. As I said before, rather than me starting from the place of saying, I am here to help and serve you, we've really developed this way of getting local people to come and help and be empowered and serve myself. And do you know, it's fantastic and really hard all at the same time. It's brilliant, but it's proper messy. I will tell you, any doubt, it's proper messy. And I think, um, again, another story. The, uh, the young boy with a couple of pieces of bread and a few fishes. And again, what did Jesus do here? I mean, Jesus did have the ability to somehow take whatever and uh, feed all of these people. You know, this, this, is, this, this is Jesus here. He holds this, this ability to create an entire universe. So you know, a bit of bread and stuff. But he chose to actually pick a young boy and said, right, you're going to, uh, you're going to help me out here. We're going to do this together. This isn't just going to be me doing to. You're going to do it together. So I think Jesus gives us a really interesting model in terms of when, it, when we come to thinking about issues of injustice, when we think about issues of marginalization. And I think it's really important right now because as we reflected on earlier on, we're moving into a really uncertain time where we seem to have... Our, our politicians, now our people in power, if you like, the king, who are just making these decisions for and on behalf of the poor. And I think that real wisdom comes from the voices of those people who are marginalised, of those people that we consider to be the poor ones. Now, I don't... What would I say... Um, I want to leave a bit of encouragement because that would be good, wouldn't it? (laughs) Normally, I'll tell you what would normally happen. So normally, because I'm from a pioneering context, we do, and maybe I should have done this a bit, we do, um, we we have much more of a bringing more people's voices on. So, but obviously because there's quite a lot of you, uh, I could say, does anyone want to contribute? So maybe I should have done that, actually. Um... And actually, I will. I will ask. Is it all right to ask a question? I will ask a question. So I think my question is: is thinking about the voices of the women, thinking about the voices of people in my community. How would we move forward in supporting people that might come, might be your neighbours, might come into the church? What are the sort of ideas that we could come up with that that gives them a sense of empowerment? So this idea of supporting people out of poverty with dignity, what is it that we could do that enables people to come and we can really listen to them and they can keep that sense of dignity as, they, uh, as we work and support them? Any ideas?
Yeah. 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 So here we have an issue, coming back to that, and I see it all the time. So we have, we have a, a value that's built on building economy, don't we? And how often in the last, um, the last six weeks or 45 days, I think it is, have we heard that thing to say we need to, we need to you know, build, build the economy? We need to get more people in jobs, more people in work, more skills, yeah, we need to cut taxes because we need investment, because investment will build the economy, build the economy, build the economy. And we are obsessed with that language to such a degree that we do not value a parent being able to stay at home, bring out their kids, go get, get them out. Childcare, we need cheaper childcare so that parents can go to work, so that we can build economy. And do you know, for my context, and this, this is what I see, we don't care what people do. We don't care if a person is actually, this is what God has made them to be. We just want them working. And I would love to turn around, and there's nothing wrong in working in a place like McDonald's at all, but I'd love to turn around to some of these MPs and say, would you do that? And would you have an aspiration for your children to do that? The answer, I suspect, is no. However, they will say to a mum, you need to go and do a shift in McDonald's um, whilst leaving your kids at home. So I think that's an interesting thing for us, I think, as church, to get our heads around. Do we buy into this uh, narrative that it's all about getting everybody into work so that we can build economy. Did you want to say something? Oh, no. Did, did, you, did you put your hand up? Do I deserve this? I'm all the work I've done. Do I deserve this? And I think one of the things that to, to speak to a church like us, where the people are reasonably wealthy, is to say that we have to reconcile, the, we, have to, we have to be more honest and reconcile the concept of wealth and square it with generosity. Um, and the idea of generosity is a bit of a dirty word. And I don't understand. Unless we, in the church itself, practice a deep generosity, we won't mm. have sufficient musculature. Great. I'm really glad you said that because the truth is I don't know if you are, you know, what, what, what your situation is. But I'm really glad you said that because that, that, that helps me. So I'll probably finish with this point. Yeah, do you want to say something and then I...
Okay. Yeah. So I think I'm going to finish off by responding to that, both of those comments, because I think it's really interesting. And I think it's, it's something, you know, church, we talk about this idea of generosity. I think what you mean by generosity is you have, if you have some, some money or some capital about, about sharing that. Is that what you mean? Or maybe not totally that. Just being generous. Okay. So coming back to voices on the margins. I think, and when I think about my community, what we need is we need a, a mixed economy. A mixed economy of people. I think what spaces like this need is for some people, quite a lot of people actually, from my neighbourhood to be here and serving you. So you're not serving them, they're serving you. I think, and I would always encourage, that spaces like this really go into other spaces and become the other. Because quite often what churches do, we, churches are good at taking on into them, let's say one or two, I'm going to be provocative with this language, one or two poor people. You know, one or two rowdy youth, we can do that. And then we sort of like celebrate it because we, uh, we make them middle class. You know the deal. You know, we clean them up. The, uh, the smelly person comes in and after a while we've given them some new clothes and taught them how to bath. Now we're very good at doing that, okay? We think, yeah, this, this is good. But I argue, you know, we, we're good at being the host. I argue that we're not very good at allowing those from the margins to host us. Now, that was the model that I believe Jesus gave. You know, Jesus continually allowed himself to be the guest in the space of the other. He stepped down from heaven. God himself became a guest in, in our space and allowed himself to be looked after, allowed himself, you know, to, be, to, to have a human bringing him up, mother him where he was completely vulnerable, allowed himself to be a kid being taught, and allowed himself, as I said, to have a woman, a prostitute, no doubt, to wash his feet. And I, what I would love, it's not so much <clears throat> um, the, the money. For me, what I would love is more people from church I'm not just talking about my project, but more people from church actually going and finding and seeking out the spaces and just being with, rather than doing to, just being with, getting involved and allowing themselves to be the guest in the spaces of the marginal voices. Um, <clears throat> a quick story that I'll finish with, because I, I just, yeah, I probably should finish at some point, is, um, you know, when we first moved in, and this is the crux of it, when we first moved into a Welsh house farm, uh, we were working with this family where mum was, um, had a lot of domestic violence against her. 
She's getting beaten up quite regularly. Anyway, our washing machine broke down. We'd only been married like three months and we got this washing machine and it broke down. So she came to our house and she said, she said, don't worry, give me your washing. She said, she took all our washing and said, I'll wash it for you. Now, during the time when she had our washing, so she'd washed it, but she hadn't dried it. Uh, she, she got into a, a fight and she got beat up by her partner. She, she had to go to hospital. So we felt really bad. We ran down, we knocked on the door. Her daughters were there and we, we got our wet, wet washing. We said, look, you know, your mum doesn't need this and we brought it back to our house. So anyway, the next day when she got home from the hospital, she knocked on our door and she, 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 she just, she went crazy. She went crazy at us. She said, how dare you take your washing? She was like, she swear. I'm not going to say you what she said because I'm in church. But she said, how dare you take your washing? She said, I said I will do your washing. I will do your washing. You know, and for me, that was a really big, a big learn for me. That was a hearing her voice. You know, I'd originally come to decide that I'm this great saviour and you were the poor person. Uh, I mean, she was no messy. I don't know. I was pretty scared of her. But that moment of hearing her voice and what she was saying to me, she was saying, actually, I am a person who has skills. I am a person who has something to offer. I don't want people just making decisions for me, looking at me and thinking, poor old battered woman. Yeah, let us come in and help you. And I think that's really important. So I think that probably, I think what I got, get, would get, ex, what we, I want to take from this passage today is often we read the voice of the king. And I think that it's really interesting when we start thinking about the voice of the women. I think when we start doing that, um, I think it challenges us to think about how we go and really hear deeply the voices of those people that are struggling, who are suffering from food poverty, struggling with their bills. Maybe we should just get involved and let them, um, let them cook us some food. I mean, it would be terribly uncomfortable, wouldn't it, to uh, take food from people that are less well-off than us. But maybe that's something that we could think about doing and what that would do to people's sense of self, humanity and dignity. That's it.